It's a tricky brand because it's it's something that people around the world have agreed to wear to show their status. And it's a few tens of thousands of people every year. You know, so it's not like millions or hundreds of thousands or something like that. And it's not something that people, little, even kids know from Mumbai to, you know, Montana and just like Ferrari or whatever else or Rolex or something like that. No, it's like a, a very novel reach product purchased by people who want to say that, okay, I've made it and I'm here and I'm rich and I'm whatever. So where do you take that? How do you turn it into something that lives on and lives beyond disgrace that's existed for the last number of years? On this week's show, we ask, have traditional retailers lost their power? Is AI now designing watches and recruiting executives? Is Ariel now living the pit life? Should all watches have a battery? And is Omega's latest novelty deserving of being called luxury? Enjoy the show. Greetings and welcome to this week's A Blog to Watch Weekly. The usual gang of suspects are here. Good morning, Ariel. How are you? I'm good. I just got back to LA last night on a trip where me and some other members of the media, you know, really suffered for the luxury watch industry. Uh, <laughs> spending a lot of time, you know, traveling. It's hard. It's hard. <laughs> Is there an industry that the consumer has less sympathy for than the journalists that cover? wristwatches oh yeah do you think car journalists are also in the same bracket of we have no sympathy whatsoever for your suffering covering luxury goods the car i think the car guys have it a little bit better they get to drive the cars <laughs> right okay. for the most part they get a little bit more leeway and i think it's it's a lot more clear what they're there for they're like okay i'm here to write about a car uh-huh. You know, for me, it's very clear with the blog to watch. I'm here to write about a watch. Yes, we talk about the world around watches, but we don't spend a lot of time talking about just like, I don't know, the minutia of fashion in a, in a way that just has nothing to do with just buying cool watches for yourself. So with us, I think sometimes we'll go to an event and like, you know, a bunch of us will look at each other and be like, oh my God, how do we cover this? Because there's times where there isn't even a watch. I mean, we've all been to events, watch events. I know David loves these, where, <laughs> but there's like no watch. It's like, and, and there's a look on his face, which is like, it's, it's not exactly like, what am I doing here? But it's like, if only you knew the other things I would rather be doing than being here right now. <laughs> <laughs> they have given Oscars for less. Uh, I mean, in terms of acting, I have to like try really hard. <laughs> <laughs> there was a fairly hysterical story in Watch Pro this week by Robin Smith and Bank. I recommend you go and have a look at that. It kind of reflected on the novelty of turning up to a big exhibition and there basically not being any watches or very few. David, the most ridiculous press event you've ever been to that was for watches that basically involved no watches? Oh, that's a tough one. Wow. These are all from a previous life. I think, you know, the, these things peaked in the mid-2010s for me. So, like, seven, eight years ago. I don't know. Probably in France, somewhere in the middle of nowhere, playing polo on the back of a horse that I can't ride. And, you know, there's like one watch that you can take pictures of for 10 minutes, but it's like a three-day event. (laughs) Something like that. Yes. I I don't think we're raising any more sympathy amongst the audience with these stories of quaffing French champagne while riding horses. Yeah, this is not going to work. I don't think you're garnering sympathy. (laughs) Good stuff. Well, lots to cover this week, but we're going to start off, Ariel, with you and your article from the start of the week. Ariel's Thoughts is what it's entitled, and it was your thoughts on how traditional wristwatch retail has lost its power over consumers. So in what way has <laughs> the, have the retailers lost control? I This was one of many essays I wrote 
sort of over the last year or so, and we published it a little bit later, I was in this sort of like essay writing mode. And I like talking about evolution of little things and how that has big impact, sort of the emergent quality of different things. And I think the premise of this article has to do with how watch retailers were really at the epicenter of convincing people to buy this watch or that watch. People would come in knowing something about watches and basically trusting the retailer to show them what they had and tell them what they wanted in a watch. And they would be educated about technique and craftsmanship. And yeah, some of them would come in knowing this or that. And this is especially before uh, the prevalence of, of a lot of watch media and, and a lot of the groups on the internet where you're really beholden to what, what, what they knew and what they told you. And that was both a lot of power for the retailer, but it was also a lot of responsibility uh, for the retailer. They had to know these things, but it came with a lot of power, meaning that they could make a lot of money by selling these things and, and, and also earning the trust of the consumer, right? So the consumer sort of had to trust them because they wanted these things, but they didn't really know how to evaluate them. And you fla flash forward to now, where things really couldn't be any different. And that is consumers come in often knowing more than the retailer, knowing what they want. And the relationship with the retailer is very different. And the value that the retailer brings to the space is still there, but is, it, but is also different. And so I like to discuss this because these small things have immense impacts on which brands do well, what types of watches do well, price points, cities around the world, and things like that. And in an attempt to sort of explain and understand the world of today, I think it's also a very good idea to contrast it with the world of yesterday. And it's not so black and white that none of this exists anymore. There's still plenty of retailers out there that to a degree educate the consumer, but the tide has really shift, shifted in a big way and consumers walk into the store uh, knowing a lot more, having a lot more ideas of what they want, and that has fundamentally changed the watch industry over the last 15 or 20 years. So how homogeneous is the current experience of watch shopping versus what it would have been 20 years ago? Like 20 years ago, if you went to watch shop in the States versus Germany versus Japan, would there have been a very different way in which you were being marketed to and sold to in an authorized dealer versus today, where my impression is that in the world of corporate sales, everyone's kind of reading the same instruction manual. It's a, it's a good point. It's an interesting question. Um, I would say that things are not consistent at all. I'm not saying that they were ever very consistent, but buying a watch today is one of the least consistent elements of the watch industry. Lots of consistency amongst good design, tons of consistency amongst products that, you know, perform the task of being a watch well, being well made. But when it comes to how the item is sold to the end consumer, it's all over the place. From some seedy little shop that, you know, you're not really sure what's going on and if it's real, to paying, you know, top dollar in a high street store, um, to buying in person or online, from the brand directly or a third-party authorized dealer, gray market, from a, an individual who has a used one somewhere. I mean, <laughs> the variety with which you can buy a luxury timepiece is staggering, is utterly staggering. And in a lot of ways, that's good. But I would say that that's probably the weakest part of the watch industry today. And why I have these discussions in the first place is that no other industry that I sort of know and, and, and work with has 
as inconsistent a process of, of buying the thing. I mean, buying cars, for example, far fewer options on how to buy cars. I'm not saying there aren't options, but it's, it, it's considerably more consistent than uh, with wristwatches. Yeah, I mean, I walked down the Argyle Arcade in Glasgow, which is our kind of famous shopping street for watches. Or you walk down New Bond Street in London, you go into the stores and you get a completely different experience depending on which shop you work, you walk into, whether it's a shop owned by a brand, a mono brand owned by a watch retailer or a multi-brand store. And it is odd that there isn't any consistency and I don't know to what extent it puts people off because they simply don't know what to expect when they go in. Are they going to get jumped on by people trying to sell them stuff? Are they going to be ignored and only spoken to when they speak? David, what's your watch shopping experience like in your part of Europe? Is it very different from what you experience traveling the world? I think, you know, it has come a long way over the last decade. Um, boutiques are, you know, much more neatly furnished. The staff is, you know, sometimes, you know, oftentimes they remain the same, but obviously as a result, much more knowledgeable. Uh, I think, you know, we don't have too many boutiques here to be representative of what it's like to buy watches in, in greater Europe. But I can attest to the fact that here in Budapest, it's, you know, people are super knowledgeable. Uh, all these um, boutiques are buttoned down, so you go there, it's it's very tidy, uh, you're, you're received well. And I keep hearing from HQ as well that, uh, you know, boutiques here are very highly uh, rated, even uh, on a global uh, standard. So I think overall it's pretty good. As far as my, my personal um, experiences are concerned, it's difficult because I'm, I'm recognized, I've been recognized for a good number of years now, but when it started, uh, I was just getting into watches well over a decade ago and I remember I went into a boutique just to look at some stuff and of course you know they were kind and frankly I expect these boutiques to be kind to absolute novices because you know you will eventually go back five or ten or twenty years later and buy a watch but the way you are treated and the way you are first exposed to these beautiful products basically when it comes to your first hands-on experience makes a big difference if you have someone breathing down your neck and just not even want to uh, you know hand the watch over that's not great they, they should be kind and helpful and, and and open as long as you're respectful and thankfully that's the case here but i'm told it's not the same everywhere to work yeah i do wonder if it's a city thing and a scale thing as to whether in the likes of budapest or glasgow Getting into the watch selling business, working for an AD is possibly a bit more of a career choice hmm. than maybe it is in London or New York, whereby what you're getting into is a sales job mm -hmm. and you'd be, you'd be happy selling anything, <laughs> but it just so happens you're selling watches. And I think it becomes a lot more obvious as you walk into various stores. I think, as you say in the article, Ariel, about how much more intelligent the shoppers are than we used to be. Uh, you're just going in uh, Christy who you all know from the their podcast and the intros to this podcast uh, tells a story recently of going into a tag boutique and the person being surprised that she was interested in this bright yellow Formula 1 watch and they got into discussion and the guy who clearly knew a lot about tag had clearly gone and done the course with Tag Heuer and selling tags was asking her as to what her favorite watch brand was, to which she replied, A Lang and Zona, to which he replied that he'd never heard of them. 
So wow. the ability for someone to go and do the training course that allows you to sell one particular brand of watch, but not pick up any any general knowledge as to the world of watches in general seems to be a bit of an indictment over just how educating watch retailers are being and training their staff you would think the 101 well, to be honest i would think that the 101 of training a member of watch retail should be to listen to a blog to watch weekly and actually pick up some general knowledge but it just seems to be a, a, a very changing and fluid situation that we're in now with retail i think as you say ariel there's so many different ways that people are trying to sell watches. It's as if this is a brand new product that somebody just invented like mobile phones 20 years ago and they haven't quite figured out how to sell them yet. Is it not a bit odd? It's weird. It's not slightly it's more weird. homogeneous than it is. I, I think it's part of the beauty of it. You know, wrist the wristwatch category is its own category, but it doesn't really agree with any other categories. And the way that people appreciate it to the ways that they're sold or the way that they're brought to market... There's so much weird variety here that the watch industry really exists in a bunch of industries at the same time. Is it this? Is it closer to this? Is it closer to this? And there's also a lot of different people that want these things for a lot of different reasons, right? So if you're like the type of person that just likes gear, you're like the you're like the gear person that just loves the cool car and the cool, you know, outdoor stuff and wants gear. You're like not really looking for a high street experience. You just want the gear. You can buy it on eBay for all you care. Like the gear is what's important. But let's say you want the watch to make you feel like a big shot. You don't want to just have the gold watch. You want the experience of being seen, getting it, going to the store, who's watching me, what's the other swag I get, can I take a selfie of myself at the sitting area, am I going to drink the champagne, I want the, you know, my girlfriend's going to go with me, we're going to be able to talk about this. I'm going to bring a friend, you know, my cousin's going to come with like, it's this whole thing <laughs> it's where it's, it's a, yeah, it's an experience. <laughs> it's a memory for them. And then when they wear the watch, they think about it, man, I felt so good. I felt like such a big shot. I used to walk by stores like that all the time, never being able to afford it. And now I could go in and I just bought myself a watch at retail price. And I was, I was treated so nicely. And like the gear, the gear person is like, what? I don't understand what you're talking about. And then if you tell the experienced person, like, just just buy just buy something online, they're like, but that's that's that that for them doesn't sort of like, you know, scratch the itch. And that's just one sort of example of two two completely different people ostensibly buying the same thing. We're gonna to touch on it shortly with the news coming out of AP this week, who are a brand who are very much going down the selling direct via their own stores. But ten years from now, Ariel David, where do you think we are in watch retail? What's changed? Or has nothing changed? Is it actually just going to be the same kind of soup of different ways of retailing things? There will be movement. We know that. We're starting to see bits and pieces of consolidation. Now, I know people are like, oh, but there's so much activity happening on the internet and there's so many new retailers. And that's true. There's a lot of them. But, you know, some of the more corporate side of things are... Um, are not really working. You know, the, the Richemont and LVMH have invested in these big online retailers, not even related to watches, just luxury items in general. None of them are doing that well. And they're going to start to sort of eat each other up, I'm pretty sure, because it just doesn't make sense. There, there is a need for sort of high-end department stores online. And so the Mr. Porters of the world and the Neiman Marcuses of the world and all the different flavors of that, they have a very real goal and in, in, in use, but they have to assert themselves. Like I remember the, the days of the local department store, and, and these are 
in large parts ended, you know, in, in America, there was Nordstrom and Robinson's May and, and Macy's and Nordstrom and it's just a whole, a whole bunch of them. And, and here in Los Angeles, these companies would market mercilessly. I mean, mercilessly. Television, print, billboards, constantly through the mail. You would just get just mailers and just spam and just so much stuff. Like, you knew about their sales. Every time of year, it was just like they just reminded you constantly to buy stuff. And that worked. That worked, but no one would go if it wasn't for just them focusing. You know, they're the anchor at malls, and, the, and they made sure there's parking, and they're open late enough. And there was just so much effort to make it convenient for the consumer to let them know about it, cater to their every need. Are the online retailers doing a lot of this? Some of them think it's very innovative that there's like a live chat. Oh, you can talk to a real person. Well, people are used to that. They've been doing that for like, you know, generations what else do you got? And so I think what we're missing is the special way that those retailers online are going to command the attention, let alone the business, of huge amounts of consumers that are going to make a difference. No one's quite sure how to do this. I mean, a blog to watch is probably one of the best places on the internet of getting traffic to an online watch store. Um, and we have, you know, we have a lot of advertisers and we thank them for allowing our business to run. But the sophistication with which, uh, watch retailers, let alone watch brands, use our advertising service services is staggeringly shallow given how much it needs to be. What they need to do to succeed in an online e-commerce environment is not what they're doing right now. It requires um, more investment, a lot more activity, a lot more things that they're doing. And and I know it because I've seen it in, the, in other worlds of e-commerce and, and how they get by and how they, again, have to mercilessly market, um, still... Uh, uh, an idea here that the product would sell itself. You put a lot of effort into the watch and people just magnetize to it. Well, they're starting to realize that old game doesn't work anymore. And you have to just, you know, again, mercilessly market online. So which stores are able to figure out the strategies and the business models to do that will be the winners. We have no idea who they'll be tomorrow because I don't think they exist yet today, at least not in that the form. I think that's a really interesting point you make about the media involvement with proper bricks and mortar retailers because i think what we've seen due to the lack of joined up thinking in terms of how do you reach your educated audience is actually been one of the drivers behind a number of media companies now selling watches they were so unable to engage with actually saying can you just traditionally advertise with us and we'll promote your store selling the watches that we speak about that so just wasn't happening that the easiest way for them to develop was to miss out the middleman and just sell the watch themselves and lose to my belief a lot of their media credibility david do you think there is one big disruptor that could change the whole market if rolex tomorrow decided you know what we're gonna let you sell our watches online would that just clear the decks and reset the whole the whole shooting match it certainly would, but they would need to be able to make five million more watches per year before that could happen. <laughs> Otherwise, it would just be the same long Excel sheet with names on it, just in one place. It, they could open a Google document and just share it with everybody. <laughs> Everyone could just <laughs> enter their name and the watch they want and then just be done with it. That would be wrong. Just see where every, glo a global list of where everybody is on the waiting list. Yes. 
Privacy set to anyone with the link can edit, and they can just go and just rearrange the, <laughs> the order of people waiting. Uh, for a, for a more serious answer, um, sure. I mean, the, like Ariel is saying, it's it's very shallow. It's been very shallow for now. I I don't think that you know. It's funny because for a lot of these brands, it's uh, strangely and traditionally uncouth to talk about money and and spending it. So, you know, the the fact that these these watches cost the Swiss being embarrassed to talk about money, it's just crazy really is it well yeah <laughs> there are a few reasons for that but we will not get into that so it's like so basically it's, it's still uh, all across this industry and and maybe you know i can always imagine the fact that they are internally not even able to discuss these things properly so uh, not be not being able to communicate it to the outer world is one thing but not having these discussions internally is another and sometimes you know at some point after a number of years have gone past you have to ask yourself like is this what we are seeing now? Where is that coming from? Why is this the result? How many actions or inactions has it taken for us to be in this situation right now? Why is buying a watch such an unsexy experience? Basically, whether you're online or brick and mortar or whatever it is, it's it's very ancient, it's very antiquated. And it's not like a hundred euro shoe where you buy it and you try it on and then you send it back if you don't like it. You know, it's like the people are probably subconsciously expecting more from this experience and they are not getting it. This week, we have seen the announcement of who is going to take over as CEO at Audemars Piguet. And it is someone that I suspect very few people in the watch industry would have gone, oh, yes, of course, that's an I have a theory. Choice. I have a theory. You have a theory. Okay, well, tell us your theory. It is Ms. Resta, who will become the first female CEO of a Swiss watch brand. I think that she was hired by AI. <laughs> Great. The first AI CEO. Yeah. No, she's not AI. I'm sure it's a real person. We'll meet her. It's a real person. I'm sure she's lovely. I think AI. she was hired by... I think there was like a, a list of parameters they wanted. Uh -huh. They're like, you know, a country of origin options, gender, backgrounds, and personality attributes, and... And they put into a system, and I think the system Love just Marvel movies. just yeah spit back a bunch of results and just give a percentage score, and then they just went through the list and be like, "Would you be willing to take this job? Our computer system thinks you'd be great for it." And then that's <laughs> I, that's I I I'm probably wrong, but this is my theory. It's a good theory. Yeah. Now this is, so this is I think it's Ilaria Resta who is Swiss Italian and his background is basically at Procter & Gamble, those well-known watch manufacturers. Are we just being snobs? Are we fundamentally just being snobs and don't like the idea that someone who used to be in charge of Pantene and Head & Shoulders getting rid of your dandruff is now in charge of a watch brand that we all like? Well, you know, let, let's, let's think about cosmetics. Cosmetics is the idea that people buy something that they put on themselves to make them feel better about themselves. And that's basically an Audemars Piguet. So I think that like the thinking is correct. It's the psychology of how are they supposed to, to expect it to feel when they learn about the product, when they buy it, when they wear it, when they see it on others. We know that Audemars Piguet has not been making watches to satisfy watch uh, enthusiasts strictly. They make cool watches, no doubt. They're they're great, but the pricing and the complications they come out with and things like that, like you can tell that there's a very specific kind of demographic that they're trying to serve, which isn't a direct overlap with like the 
you know, the traditional watch enthusiast. So they're trying to hire someone who is an experienced curator and the AI that AI powers that be have probably decided that this person is the best qualified to manage and, and foster that that experience. Because remember, they're selling directly. Like you can't, you don't go to an authorized dealer to buy an Audemars Piguet. This is a vertically integrated Disney style thing where they, you know, they make the movie that gets you excited by the watch and then they tease you a little bit about it and they tell you how awesome you're going to feel by spending all this money and hopefully you'll do it. Like this is a whole a whole experience they're trying to build. This is worlds different than the Audemars Piguet of yesterday. So the newly named AI Piguet, David, what do we think of this particular move? Her background is what she declared herself as brand building. Hmm. Can you build a brand further like AP when you are limited in the amount of product you can actually produce. She comes from a background whereby if you can sell more stuff, you make more Duracell batteries. Like, if you do a lot of advertising and people would rather buy Duracell than ever ready, then you can just go and make some more batteries or some more aerial or herbal essence or whatever. But if you build the brand further for AIPG, then what do you do? Because you can't just suddenly magic another 50,000 watches into existence. Well, there's only one way to build AP, and it's it's on it's upwards basically. You know, it's it's one watch away from being not exist in existence at all. It's a one watch <laughs> brand, so it's, okay, you can enough. only build on it. Um, whether or not that's successful will you know remains to be seen. I don't think you know um, where you've been or what you've been doing in terms of which industry you've been um, um, a CEO of. I really don't think that matters too much because AP is such a unique thing unto its own in the in the world of watches. You could be a watch CEO and you could still do a terrible job if you got the AP CEO role. You know, so it's not like there are a bunch of other people who are better qualified just because they've been running a watch brand to run AP now. So it's it's a tricky situation. I wonder what her take on it will be and. Um, yeah, clearly this rebranding or this expansion, I should say, because it's not a rebranding, this expansion with the Code 1159 is yet to work out, to put it mildly, we'll, we'll have to see where that goes. Um, and again, it's it's a tricky brand because it's it's something that people around the world have agreed to wear to, um, to, to show their status. And it's a few tens of thousands of people every year. You know, so it's not like millions or hundreds of thousands or something like that. And it's not something that people well, even kids know from Mumbai to, you know, Montana, uh, just like Ferrari or whatever else, or Rolex or something like that. No, it's like a, a very novel riche product purchased by people who want to say that, okay, I've, I've made it and I'm here and I'm rich and whatever. So where do you take that? How do you turn it into something that lives on and lives beyond this craze that's existed for the last number of years? And don't get me wrong, the, the Royal Oak is, is fantastic, but there's still a lot to be done. Let's remember that Audemars Piguet is controlled by a board. There's a group of people that have been there a long time, family members included, who basically make the decisions for everything from marketing spend to product decisions. The person running the, the company is a leader, a spokesperson, 
an executor. This isn't going to be someone who has ultimate control over whether or not they make new collections, they make new designs. So I think we need to understand the parameters of this of this job. If we're expecting someone to come in and be able to change the look and feel of Audemars Piguet watches, no, no one CEO is capable of doing that given the management structure there. So it's bigger than that. Maybe they can come in and, and influence, and of course, they're going to have to give input as to what they think new watches should look like. But from a design or brand shape perspective, they don't have a huge amount of authority. But is that a complete change, though, from the previous management of uh, Francois Henri? I mean, I got the impression that he was pretty much, you know, he'd been there 30 years. If he decided that he wanted to have some group think to design the Code 1159, then he was in charge of that. And there wasn't much the board were going to step in to, to, to do about it. Again, they, they, they I, I, I haven't seen the governing documents, but I'm pretty sure that they make these sort of joint decisions about this. I don't think that he was sort of like other managers, a product person. So the amount of products he put before them to present to them might have been limited. He might have not had a lot of passion to do it. They may have said to him, hey, we want to have more watches. What can you come up with? With And he may have not been particularly speedy about it. So there's there's a lot of things that we're not sure of, but we know that he wasn't passionate like some other CEOs, like maybe you know Jean-Claude Biver, about making new watches. He had other things that he was passionate about, relationships, branding, the brand experience, retail. I mean, he came from retail. So the, the things around retail and that experience were, were much more near and dear to his heart. And, and, and that's where he made the most changes in the company, right? Was the things that he cared about uh, with watches, uh, less so when he relied upon others, I guess. So do we think this is going to be a continuation of what Francois Henri developed over the last 30 years, as opposed to someone that's coming in to bring some brand new ideas and change direction, put their own stamp on it? Is this a hand at a steady rudder type appointment? I, I, I really don't know. I know that <laughs> the previous CEO does not have shoes that are easily filled because he's sort of a character. And I don't know that he could sort of write a, a detailed description of a strategy. Uh, you can't replace the way he speaks. You can't replace uh, his relationships that he's developed with people for a long time. So it, it really necessarily has to be a reset. I think that they're going to maintain the model where they have their own stores. And I think they're going to maintain a focus on the Royal Oak. And I think that for the first few years, it's going to look a lot the same. I, I, I really don't see this being a dramatic uh, a difference. And again, this is a, a figurehead for the first yeah. several years of their job, at the very least. Yes, it must take a long time to get your established as to how it all works. Well, best of wishes to Elaria Resta as she undertakes her new job. I'm sure it will certainly be a change of scenery from Procter & Gamble. Hi, I'm Ariel Adams, founder of a blog to watch with a message from eBay, a platform I probably use daily. Make sure your watches are the real deal with eBay Authenticity Guarantee. I believe it's the first and best service of its kind that protects your luxury purchases and checks each watch individually at eBay's highly reputable authentication partner, Stolen Company, in the United States. From band to bezel, their authenticators ensure each wristwatch matches the eBay listing and is the real deal. Authenticity guarantee is also very fast. Once authentication is complete, your watch is securely delivered via rapid two-day shipping. Surprisingly, eBay's authenticity guarantee service is free for all watches priced $2,000 and up. No one should buy a luxury item without an authenticity guarantee. Do what I do and check eBay before each watch purchase because everyone deserves real. Let's talk about a watch and an event 
that you were at Ariel. Actually, two watches and two events. Let's talk first of all about the new Clive Custler Doxa. Now, it's not telling any secrets out of school that you're not really that familiar with the Clive Custler universe as everything now gets described. Do you feel slightly more attuned to all things Clive Custler now that you've met his son and been to his event and his watch launch? I mean, slightly for sure. Uh, I, I mean, I was very honest. I, I, we did an hour-long interview with his son and then a little bit of time with the Anidox who runs Doxa. And I sat down with him. His name is Dirk. Oddly, I learned that the character in the book was named after the actual human, which was nice. It would have been very odd if somebody named their son after a character they created in a book, which is like, am I the second version? Was it that way around? I didn't know that. Yeah, boy boy came first, uh, then character Did in the he? book. Yeah, so I learned okay. certain things. Um, I don't know that you know I would necessarily relate in a lot of ways to the Dirk Pitts character. He was sort of a Luddite. You know, Clive Custer was one of those classic car lovers, and that was his son Dirk is. And apparently the character in the book would always find to do like a high-speed getaway in like a 1940s car, which again, sounds like the worst thing in the world. So <laughs> uh, I think that there's, you know, there's a demographic for this, for this type of character who is you know from from a little bit of a different time more of an analog era there's a lot of you know underwater diving shipwreck searches and things like that and so we talked a lot about that because you know the family was involved in that um, and you know we talked about diving a lot in general so we had a really great conversation um i'm definitely gonna to read some of the books he gave me his latest book he signed it which is really nice and the watch is you know, not not the Doxa you thought you were going to see. I mean, this is a very left field type of watch. The dial, I think, is really nice, and it has I, I don't want to say old timey, but sort of a compass rose style dial, which I've always thought would look good on watch dials before. Not the first time it's been done, but probably the first time on a Doxa. But it looks like it's supposed to look like found treasure. I mean, the the way that Yanni Dox explained it to me is you're supposed to have like you know, sunk, you know, dived in a sunken ship and found this watch. I'm like, oh, this is cool. The watch is supposed to look beat up. And so they tumbled it, the steel case in a machine. You have to tumble the case and the bracelet and the bezel and stuff like separately. And it looks, it's supposed to look aged. It's a pre-aged watch, which is funny because people sometimes make fun of this in the conservative circles. You know, I did this with Laco. We were designed the Radox, which is pre-aged. And I think this stuff looks really, really cool. There's a lot of different ways of doing it. This is one way. And now you have what I've always thought was a very conservative brand, Doxa, doing this with you know, probably their landmark marketing story, which is the the Clive Custer relationship. And I know it's it's cool. It validates a lot of what I've liked for a long time. So it's definitely one of the weirder ones, but it's it's satisfying. It's 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 a neat it's a really neat watch. David Doxa fan? Not really, to be honest. There's a lot of doxes around here because uh, they they won uh, a contract with the um, how do you say it? like the train transportation. Uh, feel like a hundred years ago so a lot of people Sexy. here still have yeah a <laughs> right. bunch of like oversized docks of pocket watches and they have fun memories so it's technically synonymous with a swiss watch but it's been a bit all over the place that brand for the last good number of years but yeah i do like some of their designs cool i think that's quite uh, quite smart uh i'm not sure i'd buy it but i can certainly appreciate it i interviewed jan edox as well you can see that interview on the website and he does describe the trouble that they had trying to get the bracelet wearing to match the watch case wearing. So it's clearly been a bit of a challenge. And you can tell from speaking to them 
that the whole Clive Cussler thing really is a labour of love. It's just something they feel really passionately about, this relationship that kind of put them on the map in the States and in uh, Western Europe in terms of all things Clive Cussler that they're very keen on. But it wasn't the only event and it wasn't the only watch you were present. Also with a sea theme, and that was Ulsi Nardan and the Ocean Race. What I knew is the Volvo Ocean Race because I was involved in all things Volvo in the past. But uh, what did you make of the new UN and all the pretty yachts that were around Ariel? So the Ocean Race, which is, I don't know, like the second most important sailing race around the world next to the America's Cup and um, sponsored by Lucien Ardan as the official timekeeping partner is a really cool thing. You know, and I, I sailing is one of those weird sports where you really got to be there and talk to everyone and then see it happening and then learn a lot about it to understand why it's cool, why it's competitive, what's hard about it, especially as a spectator from the shore. If, you know, there's sort of a sailing competition going on, you're just watching like, just like, oh, look at the little pretty boats, you know, moving out there. Like, you don't really know what's going on because it's so far away. But the technology for boats is fascinating. They keep making better and better boats. And I mean, I don't know how many thousands of years humans have been making and improving boats. I love that anywhere where there's a machine that we keep improving. And this particular race, they have to build the boat, you know, basically from the ground up. And they're all a little bit different in a lot of ways. They even have different shapes and things like that. Yeah, they're mono hulls, of course, but they have different shapes. And it's just, a, it's a really interesting, you know, long race. They do crazy things where they train for, you know, like month, like over a month on end. So it's, it, they, the way sort of I understood it's, it's sort of similar to being in a space station where yes, you have gravity, but you're in this really uncomfortable environment for a long time, having a weird routine each day in close proximity with others, not a lot of comforts. Um, so it's it's psychologically and physically difficult, and there's also that human element, which is interesting to a lot of people. I I like the boats themselves, the materials they're made out of, and Elysian Ardon for many years has sponsored variety of, of boating things, whether it's just being like a watch to wear while in your yacht to supporting boat races and things like that or special kinds of boats. So it's really cool to be there. The watch is the... Um, the ocean race version or this this year's ocean race version of um, the diver's chronograph it's black with this uh, carbonium I, I, I like that it makes me smile to say that name carbonium <laughs> bezel <laughs> um, you know great chronograph movement I think that this this watch case concept which has been out for a few years now is maturing nicely uh, it's simple but it's handsome it's not too big again it has a good uh, automatic movement so it, it's it's a cool thing and if you understand the ocean race it's even neater i just i want more chance like opportunities to sail like that's that's what how i come away from these things like i want to be on the water more doing that well you can come up for scotland we can take you in a boat anytime david you might not be a doxa fan but i do know you're an ulsi nardan fan what do you make of this this is not a freak ulsi nardan in shock non-freak watch launch <laughs> 
Yes, I like all things Ilya Snowden, to be honest. I'm not saying they can't make any mistakes, but I do like the fact that they have a good number of collections and every once in a while they narrow it, they trim it down and then they build it, they just can't help themselves. And oh, there's another like yachting watch and then another chronograph with an in-house movement and this and that. So um, I, I like the dynamism of the brand and it's just such a small, agile company that, that can enjoy and live its creativity. Uh, yeah, it's all kinds of pluses for me when it comes to Lusana, so I, I freaking love it. This is not the you and I would buy. I think it's a bit too large to my eyes. The the subdesks are a bit too close together, but maybe that's just me. But I do like carbonium and I like a light watch. And this looks like exactly the kind of watch that looks good on a boat when it's raining and you know water is splashing into your face and you're being sliced up by you know like sharp ropes and whatever flying all around you so i you know it sounds like the watch would survive longer than i would on a yacht that's for sure david bringing his vast yachting experience to describing sharp yes. ropes. <laughs> ptsd from like whatever high performance sailing boat <laughs> good stuff yeah I, I actually the observation you've made is the observation i would make the subtitles just look not quite in the right place not when you hold the watch when you handle the watch i, I don't think so i, I it, it looks okay yeah I, again i was wearing the watch a lot and i didn't see any of that i don't think anybody mentioned anything like that so this happens sometimes you know you see a picture and you can come to the wrong conclusion but i think that you have to see this and pretty much every watch in person to come to the final conclusions so, so we're just blaming your photography Is that it? my <laughs> photography <laughs> who took the photos i think it's because there's those like circles within circles and if you took those out yeah. it would look totally fine but it like uh -huh. it creates this visual illusion that the two main ones are like closer to the center than they actually are hmm. right okay cool what do you call this feature you have it on ulysses nardan and some others so they've got the ocean race written on this kind of end of the rubber strap uh, Bulgari have a similar sort of thing on the uh, obviously the Bulgari Bulgari as I like to call it. I don't know what it was called from last week. What do you call that bit? Has that got a name? Yeah, it's a, it's know, a link. Bit I mean, it's a link. It feels like it should have a a a, a more dedicated name than just a link. You want to come up with one? Come up with a cute name I for think it. We, I think I think we need to come up with a cute. If you, anyone's got any suggestions of cute names, then uh, do message in. We should come up with a cool name for that, it's true. Well, it leads us nicely on just mentioning the Bulgari. We, we put a poll in the field last week. The question was, when you think Bulgari, what do you first think of? The options were fashion brand, lifestyle brand, or watch brand. And the results are in, and they're completely inconclusive. Oh my gosh. Fashion brand, 40%. Lifestyle brand, 20%. Watch brand, 40%. So I think that means that me and David win because I said fashion brand, he said watch brand, and I think Ariel, you called it a lifestyle brand. So the only conclusion of this very limited poll is that you're not right, but not that we are. I think is probably the only conclusion. Wow, compelling, but compelling information there. A, a, comp a compelling statistics there. <laughs> so if you've got an idea for what you should call this little link that these watches have, then we're all ears. And anything else you want to ask the show, email podcasts at a blog to watch.com. Ariel, you reviewed a rather 
unique is probably not quite right, but I suppose it's uniquely powered. A smart watch that uses some mechanical wizardry to keep its battery going. Something which seems from the world of cycling and dynamos like a kind of obvious solution. Why is this not something that everybody is adapting? This is the sequent electron supercharger smartwatch. This is sort of the next generation of hybrid watches. See, when the smartwatch first came out, we saw a lot of this type of hybrid thing. And I don't really know what else to call it. It's like a hybrid between traditional watch and a smartwatch. And it came in a lot of different flavors. These were not particularly satisfying products. They were created because there was a clear, you know, uh, concern with a lot of consumers. Oh, I like the smartwatch stuff, but I like the looks of the traditional watch. And that was true. And so various designers tried to come up with these sort of in-betweens. And from mostly a technological standpoint, these were never very satisfying. A couple of years later, I think that that companies are ready to try again and Sequent is one of them. And what they've done is they've come up with a smartwatch, which is a relatively simple machine in the sense it's not trying to just pack itself with features. It does a few things and does them, you know, pretty okay. And it's built on sort of the philosophy of design and aesthetics and form and function that that traditional watches are based on. So it's sort of like if you if you like traditional watches, you want like sort of an entrance into sort of more modern watches. This is a really cool way of doing it emotionally and psychologically. And the watches are cool. They're well-made, and they're not priced too high. Um, the one that I wore mostly was produced from titanium with a sapphire crystal and, you know, attractive dial. And it was, like, uh, just under 850 bucks. And I think that the, it goes up a little bit more close to $900 with a DLC-coded case. And it begins with a movement uh, that has an, a, a rotor, and a rotor, but rather than winding um, a, a, a mainspring, it generates electricity through an electromagnetic generator, and that electricity feeds a battery, which powers a relatively simple quartz mechanism. It has a Bluetooth, so it updates the time and, and can send data that the onboard sensors collect to uh, software on your phone. Um, and on board, it has a heart rate monitor and a blood oxygen uh, meter, and it, um, you know, I think an accelerometer for steps and things like that. And so it's an activity tracker um, combined with a traditional watch that powers itself. You're you you're able to put it in a docking station, but unless you're doing a lot of complicated stuff and tracking your workout regularly, I actually was able to get away with just wearing it as an automatic. And that's really what intrigued me, is it wasn't yeah. that the the electricity generating system was gimmicky, but that it worked very, very well. Now, yes, Seiko Kinetic has been in this space for a long time, but the Seiko Kinetic concept has never been adapted to, to anything modern. In fact, Seiko seems to have more or less abandoned everything related to sort of cool high-end quartz watches they used to, with the Kinetic and the Direct Drive, and they had all this kind of crazy stuff. They, they're just, other than Grand Seiko, they don't seem to have any interest in really high-end quartz right now. So, yes, this is not the first time, but I think that this system uh, produces more electricity. It's larger, but I think it produces more electricity than um, the, the Seiko Kinetic and, this, and the system aboard the Sequent needs to. So... This is not the first generation product from Sequent, which is why I, I sort of um, was more excited to review it because I don't really like reviewing first generation stuff from from uh, you know 
technology companies, electronics companies, because it, it inherently is going to get better. But this was this was well done. This was fun. There's room for them to improve and add more features for sure. I think it's really about that, adding more features. Um, and I talk about that in the review. But I was genuinely excited by this. And again, it's going to be a niche product. But I, I, I think that this is something that traditional watch lovers can uh, get a lot more excited about than, than they may have been able to in a traditional smartwatch. We spoke briefly last week about the future merging of technologies. And I do wonder whether it's just waiting for somebody in the mechanical watch world that uses an automatic movement to just add the little bit that makes the secret watch produce power for a battery that gives you Bluetooth connectivity. And that if you were to add that to your Zenith so that it would always set the time to be the right time, that that wouldn't be the ultimate coming together of mechanical. Well, Re Resonance did that. Or tried yeah. to. Yes, uh, but I think their their price point and what they tried to do was possibly the inhibiting factor. Here's an organization that's managing to do more than just connect to Bluetooth for a few hundred dollars. So you've got to assume that the cost of the actual unit that does the Bluetooth bit, the battery charging, and the rotor is a couple hundred dollars at the absolute most. If somebody could just add that, you can kind of I can kind of imagine a brand like Frederick Constant or somebody like that going, you know, if we were just to add the or Longines, somebody Here, listen, here's we the problem. The, the problem is this: they could and they will, and eventually they'll find it. But from the business perspective, none of this makes any sense because we're not actually improving technology. I mean, you are, but you're sort of like adding a flavor rather than inventing a new meal, if you know what I mean. And it's unclear what the market wants. Usually when you make a new machine, it's like, well, we're making it because this segment of the market would buy something like this because they're not being served and the other products aren't really quite for them. So there's like a business case for it. Here it's like, well, we're looking for the right product that makes people happy and smile and you know wear it all the time. Like nobody knows what that is. So they're, they're just hoping that someone figures out a formula or a template or some type of a platform that people like and then people will be happy to invest in it and build on it but you know finding these platforms you can build on and the watch space has been very difficult the automatic movement was such a platform you know there was this sort of like agreed upon shape and way it worked and it was like okay everyone this is great let's build a whole industry around it and that's what they did but finding new platforms uh, people are hesitant because if you invest in the wrong thing and another platform comes around you feel really foolish david ariel touched on a thing there of asking the question or positing the problem of well what does the market actually want you have reviewed a watch the charles zuber perforce watch designed by eric giroud this seems to me to be an organization that sat down and gone what does the market want it wants this and then they've set across to design it what did you make of this charles zuber they were at what charles zuber at watches and wonders weren't they yeah, I think they were there. Um, not, not at Watches and Wonders, but just outside. I think they were. At no, they were the at Watches Board and Wonders. Watch. No, they, they, they were there. They were in the Carré. Yeah, they were. I went to Carré. visit them and everything. Oh, I, 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 I saw them at the at the Board of Watch. That's why I said, okay, I said, that's where I said hello. That's so they're funny. everywhere. Yeah, 
The, yeah, no, that's you're dead right. They were they were in two places. <laughs> yeah, taking over Geneva. Um, well, yeah. um, you know, it, just as you said, I think it's it's clear. I'm, but it's you know, I don't think it's fair to put it on Charizuber that they are the only ones doing it. I, you know, there's basically <laughs> all the big brands and middle-sized brands and small brands are doing it. It's an integrated bracelet with an angler, a bezel, and it's just the same thing over and over again. But at least we can say that this one looks unique and recognizable uh you, you know it's very difficult to confuse this one with anything else and that i will applaud and i also like that it's uh, thin it's not you know not, not as bulky as some of the others in the competition there's some really nice and really neat details and of course some others that they need to refine but the one that i had in for review was an early prototype so you know i i cut them some slack and i mentioned this in the review that it's um you know uh, these things are supposed to be improved here and there but again we're talking about small details i like the, the bespoke movement which is also very cool by uh olivier mori um you might uh know him from some other brands and it's a, it's a cool little movement Again, bespoke design, micro, toro, all the rest of it. And prices are, well, they range from 7900 all the way to 24.5, And the one I reviewed was 22800 So it's a costly watch, low production, with some really nice details here and there. Yeah, it was interesting that they're producing it in these different sizes, 36, 39, 42. And the cost differentials between them... <laughs> Uh, obviously different materials i assume between the sizes do you think that this is a is this a design language that they're pushing into is 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 this what we're going to associate charles zuber with it's certainly cool i like the look of it sure i mean you know once they spend all this money and they have eric uh, giro design it then you have to stick to this and then just just introduce refinements but i think they have established their design for that finally i think we will have a chat about probably the biggest, was it the biggest release of the week? Maybe the Omega Seamaster Aquaterra. Whether it was the biggest release of the week or not, it's one of my favourites. I'm a big fan of this world timer with the laser ablated uh, map of the world on it. Was this anything to write home about for either of you gentlemen? All you, I got another meeting soon. <laughs> Ariel is like, yeah, whatever. I've got somewhere else to be rather than talk I, about this. I, I mean, people will buy this. Look, Omega has a very different attitude when they release stuff that they know watch lovers are going to be into, and ones are like, oh yeah, I know this is like you know made for watch lovers like the rest of our stuff, but we know you guys aren't really asking for this. I mean, this is fine. Some people are going to be like, oh, I'm so happy they made this, but they're not inventing anything new here. It's, you know, oh, you like the earth on the dial. Oh, you like this. Oh, green's hot. This is the totally made by committee type of thing. Doesn't have a lot of soul to it. I mean, it's, it's, this is like, this is like kind of designed the way that watches were designed, like on Matrixies, you know, 20 years ago in a way that we all made fun of. Um, it, it's fine. I'm just, I, I feel nothing here. So we have an AI CEO appointment and we have an AI design watch. Is that what we're saying? I, I mean, like again this is like designed to appeal to like a market position like i don't think that this is like somebody be like guys i woke up from a dream i had this idea for a watch we got to do this like no, like no one asked for this to exist is my point well at least i suppose on the plus side you've probably saved me from spending ten thousand euros on a watch by putting <laughs> me off david 
Hot or not? I, I think it's it's pretty cool. I think it's going to be well received. Um, Ringing endorsement will be well received. Uh, I will disagree with Ariel here. I think I think yeah. I think I think people will go crazy for this. Honestly, I, I it's it's a great looking watch. It looks a complete hole for once. Um, yeah, I think it's going to do really well. And it's not like fifteen grand or, or eighteen or some preposterous amount. It's nine four and nine six and if you want it on titanium then it's ten thousand on it it's not cheap by any stretch of the imagination but i think for once it looks pretty cool but their official images were really quite bad um, why do people still consider this a luxury uh complication this complication has been built for literally a hundred years you yeah. can make it in the cheapest way possible it's like the most basic set of gears. I think that's what bothers me. Is like, stop pretending that this is high end. I know you want to sell high end watches, Omega. I fully support that. But like, why can't you be like Frederick Constant? Be like, oh look, it's our world timer for three thousand dollars. Like that. That this is ten thousand dollars. Just seems unnecessary to me. I, I think David, we've discovered that the way to get Ariel to go for the quick hot take is to put him under pressure. That he's got another <laughs> meeting to go to. <laughs> I'm dedicated to my job as a commentator, Rick. <laughs> Excellent. Well, we're enjoying that commentary. Good stuff. Well, that is us for this week. Go check out the Omega review. Give us your opinion as to whether this is just a nonsense uh, product from Omega that uh, really shouldn't be priced the way that it's priced and it's not a luxury product i think is what ariel's saying not a luxury movement but there we go ariel where can we find you in this coming week uh i'll actually be at home but you can read my articles on the blog to watch.com <laughs> uh updates on instagram at ariel to watch this podcast and the superlative podcast good stuff david what are you up to uh, yeah, it's abtw underscore david on Instagram and a blog to watch.com. More hands-ons, more reviews coming in. Stay tuned for that. Excellent. Well, uh, thank you for listening. You follow me at Rick TikTok and Instagram. And tune in again next week. Goodbye. Thanks, everyone. Catch you guys next week. Bye-bye.